Bibles to the Holy Scriptures. We will consider this morning from the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verses 13 to 24. As we turn there, I remind you that last week we considered from Isaiah 25 the final victory that God promises to all who believe in Jesus, who wait on him with hope. We saw how God promised there to swallow up death forever, and how that promise is meant to strengthen us to face each and every trial through life, even death itself, with a living hope. But what about before then? What about before we arrive at death or before Christ returns on that great day of resurrection and renewal? Well, in today's passage, we find that as we wait on him, the Lord calls us and renews us to love him with all our heart. And that leads us to our text this morning from Isaiah 29, verse 13 to 24. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. It is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right." Therefore, says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no longer be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur, will accept instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it together this morning. We'll, we'll just jump straight into the text this morning. What we find in the very beginning here is a strong indictment against God's people. It is a piercing accusation. We might call it a fatal diagnosis. What is it in the opening verses there of our passage? Isaiah calls it out. It's fake worship, lip service, detached from heart service. 
We also might call it dead orthodoxy. You see, the church in Isaiah's day, they knew right theology about God. They showed up for worship. They offered sacrifices according to the law, but their hearts were not in it for God. Their mouth spoke towards God, but their minds, their affections, and their wills were not turned towards Him in love. They were turned away from Him. And friends, loved ones, this can happen to all of us. This can happen to the church today. It's possible to go to church and have all the correct words, all the correct theology, and all the correct postures, and still be spiritually dead wrong. How so? Well, because if our hearts are not in it, it's fake worship. It's flattery. God wants, not flattery, He wants worship from our hearts. But let's pause then and ask an important question. What does the Bible mean when it says heart? Because we have our own understanding, but what does God's Word say? Well, to help us answer that question, one author, Craig Troxell, in his careful study of the whole Bible, defines the heart in this way, saying, it is the governing center of a person. The unity of our inner being as composed of mind, that is what we know, and what we desire, what we love, and our will. So our mind, our desires, and our will, which is what we choose. Now, by comparison, how do people in our own culture, how do we often think of heart? We think of heart often merely as emotions. But when Isaiah uses the word here, what is he thinking of? He's thinking of that control center of our soul. Or you might think of the heart as the internal spring from which bubbles up and comes forth your thoughts, your desires, and your decisions. All of those things are flowing from your heart in the biblical sense of the term. Now, this was the problem. As the people went to worship God, they weren't really thinking about God Himself. They weren't thinking of His presence. They weren't really desiring God Himself, and they weren't really choosing in their will to glorify God above all else. They showed up, sure, but they left their hearts turned off to God. And as a result, they brought fake worship to God. You know, fake worship, what is it? It is not a response to the reality of God, who He is, but rather a response to social pressure, to mankind. And that's exactly what Isaiah says here in our passage. He says, look at it, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So they feared God because men had told them to do it. They weren't worshiping God for the sake of God. They were worshiping God for the sake of men. Do you see that? Lots of people do the same thing today. They go to worship God in order to perhaps please their parents, right? Or parents go to church and take their children along with them in order to ensure that their children are moral, upstanding citizens in the world. Or perhaps some people go to church in order to make America great again, thinking that the church is an important aspect of that. And still others might go to church in order to try and make themselves great again, right? And what's common to all of those reasons why people might go to church? They're all going for the sake of men, not for the sake of God. 
That kind of worship is a response to humans and that social pressure instead of a response to the reality of God himself. Like it was in Isaiah's day, people fear God and worship because other people have told them it is the right thing to do. But Isaiah here is telling it how it is. He calls out that kind of worship as fake worship. It is heartless, devoid of affection and will to seek God's glory. You know, our Lord Jesus, in his own day, when he walked about this earth in his ministry, he called out the religious leaders of his day in the very same way for their hypocrisy, the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers of God's law. He called them out for fake worship. And in fact, he quoted this very passage here from Isaiah when he did so. You see, the problem is old and widespread, and it reaches us today as well. You see, God does not want fake worship. He doesn't want flattery. God wants you to encounter the reality of who he is and what he has done in time and space, in human history, so that in response to his reality, you actually want to praise him and choose to praise him from your heart. God wants you to draw near to him with your heart. That is, again, your mind, your desires, and your will. He wants you to know him, to desire him, and to choose him above all else. But sadly, many don't do so, just as in Isaiah's day. And what was God's response to this fake worship, this heartless flattery, this vain lip service? Well, look again with me at verse 14. Verse 14, he says, Therefore, which is connecting it to that problem that we just saw, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. See, God here is promising to do something amazing that would cause wonderment. And there's a lot of emphasis here in the text about the idea of wonder or amazement. The text can literally read this way, I will act wonderfully, acting wonderfully with wonder. Lots of emphasis, lots of repetition. God is promising to do something that would leave people dumbfounded, in complete awe. You can kind of picture it with their jaws dropped and their eyes wide. What just happened? What on earth has God done? Now, why? Why did God do this? Why is he promising to do this? Well, according to the second half of verse 14, Isaiah tells us that God would do this wonder so that the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. In other words, what God was saying basically is that this wonderful thing that I'm about to do will make your scholars look like preschoolers. See that? The wonder that I'm going to do is so real. It's not abstract. It will prove once and for all that salvation does not come by man's wisdom, but rather by the wisdom of God. Not by your own power and strength, but by the power and strength of God at work. For you. Now this raises a question for us, right? As we're considering God declaring he's going to do this wonderful thing. What wonderful thing has the Lord God done? What was Isaiah talking about? Well, we don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate here. Paul, the apostle, tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and I invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, because Paul there quotes this very prophecy from Isaiah chapter 29. 
So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. And again, Paul is showing us here how God fulfilled that prophecy from Isaiah. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. There's that quote from Isaiah. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what was the wonder that God promised he would do and work? What was the wonderful thing? It was the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God unleashed his mighty power to save sinners through the suffering and death of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, sadly, I think the wonder of the gospel is a bit lost on us because we're so familiar with it. We have to remember how shocking this was for the people in Isaiah's day or even for Paul himself. It was, and it seemed totally counterintuitive, foolish, the idea that Israel's hopeful king would suffer a shameful death was unthinkable. Think about it. In order to win, God chose first to lose, in a sense, on the cross. In order to beat death, God was going to give himself over to death as a victim, in a sense. And that's what we saw last week. Remember how God was going to get the victory over death? by swallowing it up, by taking it into his own body on the tree, destroying death through the death of his own son. Now, that, that's hard to believe. That is something that causes wonder. What human would have come up with that kind of story? This is absolutely not what the Jewish people ever wanted or longed for. They wanted God to show up and beat their enemies in victory and triumph. They didn't want a king who was apparently weak, a suffering Messiah, was not on their radar. But this is the great wonder that God was promising to wonderfully act and do. And when Jesus performed in his own life and ministry wonder upon wonder with the signs and the healings of the lame and the deaf and the blind, and then Jesus willingly died on the cross, and then when Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day, the Creator God added further proof of His reality and His sovereign reign that salvation comes not by man, but comes by God and what He has done. And yet, sadly, sadly, many of the Jewish people in Paul's day did not accept the message of the cross. They stumbled, they tripped and fell over the wonderful gospel of Jesus. They thought that the wisdom of God seemed foolish. And so as Isaiah predicted, right, all who reject the gospel, all who reject this message of God's wisdom, 
they will perish along with their wisdom, along with their discernment. And still today, billions of people around the world live their lives without regard for God, their creator, their maker. They refuse to acknowledge his reality. They mock God and his wonderful gospel, and they try and ignore his existence. And in fact, Isaiah, as we turn back and look at our passage in Isaiah 29, Isaiah talks about that stubborn mindset that is so ingrained in the human heart. In verses 15 to 16, he calls out people for trying to act as if God doesn't see them, as if God doesn't care or God doesn't exist. People run their lives the way they want, doing whatever they want, hiding from God and saying, who sees me? Who knows us? The imagery that came to my mind when I was studying this passage is a toddler playing hide-and-seek. If you've ever played hide-and-seek with a two- or a three-year-old, you'll know what I'm talking about. How do they usually hide? They usually take a pillow, a small one, and cover their face, right? And they're giggling, and they think that, oh, my mom and my dad can't see me, therefore, or rather, I can't see them, therefore they must not see me. They think and they are convinced that they are hidden, but in reality they are very much exposed and their parents can see them very clearly because they're just covering their face. You see, it doesn't work like that. Just because you can't see God doesn't mean that he isn't watching your every move, even in the darkness when no one else is watching. You think you are hidden and safe in your sin, but in reality you are very much exposed, just like that toddler who thinks it's hidden from its parents. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, we are clay in the potter's hand, Isaiah says. You're not a self-made person. You have a maker, and he knows your very heart. He knows exactly how he has made you, and he knows exactly what's going on in your heart every moment of every day. His understanding is infinitely deeper and vaster than you can even begin to fathom. And so stop avoiding the reality of God. Stop hiding from your maker. Instead, recognize that you are not your master, and therefore entrust your soul to the hands of the potter. Give your heart over to God in faith, trusting that he will mold you into something far more beautiful and useful for his glory. And notice, as we continue in this chapter of Isaiah, that he is not only calling out sinners for their stubborn pride and their fake worship, but he also gives us great hope of transformation that we truly are in the hands of the potter, and he will mold us into something greater. We see that in verses 17 to 24, where Isaiah describes this great turning of hearts. Human hearts are naturally turned against God and sin and hiding from Him, as we've considered, not thinking of Him, not desiring Him, not choosing Him. And that's the bad news. But the good news here is that God has the power to turn our hearts around in a miraculous way of renewal, regeneration. God has the power to turn bad guys into good guys. And this means He has the power to transform even you in your darkest and most hidden parts, he has the power to transform all of you. He is able. Christian, your sanctification, that is your process of becoming more and more like Jesus, it's not just a job that God gives you and says, go work on your sanctification. No, rather it is a promise 
that we find throughout Scripture that God is promising to do this work for you. He is able to work in you, to will and to do for His good pleasure, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. And verses 17 to 24 show us how God is able to empower and enable us, this spiritual transformation that God promised to work. First of all, he uses vivid imagery. He speaks of Lebanon that will turn into this fruitful field that will then be called a forest. Now, this is very interesting, fascinating in the study of the text because Lebanon in Isaiah's day was already a flourishing and abundant forest. And so what is Isaiah talking about here? Well, he's claiming here that the glory of this transformation that God will work will be exponentially greater than even the best things that we know of. The Jewish people loved and delighted in the cedars of Lebanon, those forests, the beauty of that nature. And Isaiah is saying that the renewal that God's going to work is going to be far greater than that, exponentially better. The renewal that he's promising is richer and more beautiful. And then Isaiah speaks about how God will wonderfully renew his people's hearts to truly worship the holy God from the heart with hearing and understanding and joy. He talks about healing the deaf and the blind and giving new life to people. Now, when did that happen? When has this happened? Well, again, in the New Testament, we find that another passage where this very prophecy in Isaiah was quoted and cited in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, Jesus claimed that he was the one who came to fulfill this passage. John the baptizer was in prison, and he sent his disciples to Jesus asking, are you the one, or should we look for another? And this is how Jesus responded to him, quoting or alluding to Isaiah here. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus was saying, my wonderful deeds, my dealings, my healings with the people have proven that I am the Lord God, the Messiah. Yes, I am the one. And great turning, a great turning of hearts is happening now. Today is the day of salvation. If you embrace Jesus by faith, you too will be blessed with him. That is the good news that we find here, that the Lord, he came to bring about this exponentially greater renewal of all things, including the great turning of human hearts to love him. And here's the amazing thing. So we connect all we've seen together. The very same wonder that God promised he would send to confound the wise, to make them look like preschoolers, right? That very same wonder is the same wonder that contains the power of God to save sinners in the world, like you and me. And that's what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the gospel of Jesus, it looks foolish to those who are perishing, but it is the very power of God to those who are being saved. And therefore, Christians, you to, who look to Jesus by faith, behold the wonderful wonder of God, Jesus Christ. By his perfect love, his sacrificial love, and his death-defying love, Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost. He is able to forgive you all your sins and to make you whole again. 
Behold your wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. He died and rose for you to cleanse you and to renew you. Now here's the last question for us. How do we fix our hearts? How do we not bring fake worship or heartless worship? What is the remedy? It is the gospel. By letting Jesus love grab your whole heart, not just your mind. As the reformer John Calvin wrote, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory alone, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. By faith, then, see how through the cross of Jesus, the very love of God is even reaching you now into the cold and lifeless parts of your heart to make you flourish like the beautiful cedars of Lebanon, to give you sight like one who was blind in the gloom of darkness, now seeing the beauty of his grace and love, to give you ears to hear the melody of his grace and his kindness. Do you see it? The more that we see the reality of the wonderful grace and mercy of God towards sinners like us, and the more our hearts will be drawn to him in worship. And Calvin also wrote this. He said, Men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy the more we understand how indebted we are to his mercy and love, then the more our hearts will be drawn in sincere love for him to worship and obey him with zeal, with love and passion. So friends, don't fear God because I'm telling you to or because someone else tells you to. If that's why you come, if that's why you worship God, then it is fake worship. Rather, Fear and obey the Lord God because you have received his grace and his love, his forgiveness and his kindness, his mercy and his grace. Experience the reality of God's wonderful love by faith and then worship King Jesus with all your heart because he is worthy. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus, joy of loving hearts, we thank you for your, the wonder of your grace and love towards us. Oh, what an amazing thing, as we will soon sing of. Lord, we, we know that this message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we thank you, O oh God, for your promise of old and fulfilling that promise by sending your one and only Son, who died and rose again from the dead for us. And now, from heaven sends forth the Holy Spirit to renew our hearts. Lord, we do believe in you and ask and pray that you would save us to the uttermost, indeed renewing every aspect of our heart, that with our minds, our desires, and also our will, we would love you sincerely and fear you rightly. We pray and ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, loved ones, let's respond to God's word this morning by singing 494.